Kia and welcome to episode 87 of the Stag Raw Podcast. Today I'm joined by Brian Call, who is the host of the Gritty Podcast over in the States. I've got 480-odd episodes on hunting and all things hunting. Um, and also Brian is about to release a four-part series of the hunt that he did earlier this year in New Zealand after being over here last year and hunting with Kadrona Safaris. As Brian acknowledges in the podcast, um, that's not necessarily, maybe, going to make him that popular with some of the guides around New Zealand, um, but currently he's doing nothing wrong, and yeah, as you'll hear in the podcast, Brian actually advocates for some sort of more stringent system, I guess, um, to... I guess user pays for internationals coming to New Zealand. We're one of the few countries where people coming into the country don't necessarily have to pay for a hunting experience. And you just got to read the latest New Zealand Hunter magazine with um, Cam from Point South to understand that that's a relatively new concept for New Zealand. 1932 was when that was opened up. And... um, with the free flow of information that's out there these days, uh, especially in the likes of social media, podcasts, Instagram, uh, it's very easy to get information around getting things. And so what I think this podcast provokes is that it's time for New Zealand hunters to take a, take a responsibility for our game animals. We sort of saw that last year with, with the tarkal, and what I'd really encourage people to do is join their local NZDA, get in behind the people like the Game Animal Council. I see that they're advertising for a general manager, so hey, they're going to need some funds for that. Uh, so it's time that we started doing something. With, you know, Hunting licenses are no stranger to New Zealand. If you want to go fishing, you need a hunting license. If you want to go duck shooting, you need a hunting license. And then if you're an international angler, you need to pay an international angler's hunting fee. I guess the the hard part, you know, for us every day, every weekend, or every few weekend hunters such as myself is that we're not impacted necessarily by this, although it probably might affect the way that our animal species structure comes about if we've got a whole bunch of people coming over here to hunt for trophies and the work isn't being done in in culling nannies and and, and young kids um, or, or, you know, hinds and, and... and young young stags that have got no potential, but you know, to us it doesn't have any effect. But to the guides who you know have to get licenses and, and pay levies in order to guide people in national parks and, and things like that, or, or pay landowners or own their own land as it may be, um, and also buy in animals if you're in the case of a high fence operation, you know, this is the sort of stuff that has a potential to affect them. And, and Brian acknowledges that, and, and you know, he accepts that. You know, whilst what he was doing is not wrong, um, the, it does have an impact on, on people in various ways. So, yeah, there's a lot to think about in this. If you are sort of put out about this, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. If, if you've got something positive or, or constructive to discuss about that, I'd love to have uh, hear from you. And, and, and I'd even love to have you on because I know uh, the guys at the Educated Hunter are having this discussion. As I said, it's in the NZ Hunter magazine, this discussion about what do we do to better manage our game animals? Because, you know, in the current political situation, there's some people that are trying to take that away from, from the general public. And then uh, this is another force that 
possibly will influence the quality and, and the accessibility of our game animals. So I hope you enjoy this. Brian has a, a great insight um, from an international. That's why I wanted to get him on. It was really cool to talk to him, hear his perspective, hear what he thinks of it, um, especially towards the danger that it is of going into the Southern Alps. I was, I was talking with another outfitter this week and he sort of termed it that the Southern Alps are like Alaska and hey, unless you knew what you're doing, uh, you wouldn't just go to Alaska. I'm just about to start reading Into the Wild and we all know what happened to that guy. Three months in, he's no longer with us. So yeah, and, and that's unfortunately been the case in New Zealand's west coast this year. You know, we've lost some people and you know, exposure's no joke and if you're not prepared, then um, then it's uh, you're, you're getting taken out of there by the, the search and rescue, which is, which is never good. Right, let's get into this podcast. Great chat and I thank Brian a heap for coming on and, and talking freely. It was really awesome to get his opinion. Cheers. Kia ora, everybody. We're just chatting about how good Zoom is working today. And Brian, Brian reckons that it might be because it's Sunday afternoon over there in the States and everybody's out doing stuff and it's, you know, early summer. Uh, Brian, I, I start off, you know, Sunday for you right now. What have, what have you been doing this weekend? Uh, yesterday, ironically, I worked from eight in the morning till five PM on the New Zealand tar footage. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> trying to launch that. The first part of the we have a four part video series. Um, it the first the first video ended up being forty two minutes long. It's just too long. But so yesterday I went in and chopped it. So I think I'm down to thirty six minutes. It's still pretty long, but um, you know I. It, with each video I make, I want to, I, I kind of feel like a hunting video should have an actual harvest on there or a kill, right? Like, and so, um, yeah, otherwise, cause I could just do day by day, like day one, day two, day three, we were there like 12 days, 10, 12 days. So, but I, instead I, I, I kind of like the idea of just getting it down to like four parts where we had four successful hunts and everything in between is just kind of a, uh, you know, just a little bit of the story on what's going on, but the stock and the harvest and all that is kind of, and how we do it, how we did it, uh, the mistakes we made, like putting that into the video, I think is just I, how I like to roll, you know, mm. get rid of the fluff. <laughs> I've just just finished watching one of the boys from New Zealand, Paul Michaels, um, who I've had on here, um, and he made his tar video two hours, but that was just one video. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I, it, yeah, mine would be about two hours long. I think they're going to be four thirty-minute parts. Uh, I, you know, and I thought about releasing it all in one or releasing it over the period or, or all at once, all four, and you can just binge watch them all, but. Uh, I'm busy. Like elk season starts in a few weeks. <clears throat> I'm shooting my bow and packing my bags. And last night I took the family to the movies, uh, in the evening. And today we went to church and this evening we're going to hike the mountain together and have a little picnic. And there's that balance between family and work. And, and, uh, it's hard to strike that balance well. And that my goal is, you know, this way I can, put a video out this week and then that gives me a little time to finish the next one before next week. And I'll just put one out each week. Otherwise you're not getting them for a while. If I have to wait till they're all done. Yeah. Nice. It says 
is that going to be on a gritty website or on YouTube? Where, where yeah, I'll just dump it on YouTube. Yeah. Fantastic. I'll obviously link your YouTube channel in the show notes. Mate, you said about going for a walk up the hill um, with the family. Is that sort of doubling? Are you going to be one of these strange people that people look at and go, why is that guy wearing a pack on a, on a kettle hike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> like some of these guys show up and like decked out and like, I don't know, rogue and under armor gear and they're running the hill and they're hiking all. And I'm wearing like hiking boots and a big old pack and I'm hiking with the kids. And uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's dual purpose. It's training and, and just being in, in shape for what I actually want to do in a few weeks. Um, I don't take it all too seriously though. Uh, you know, the fitness thing, I, it's just part of my life. I go to the gym a couple days a week and I hike the mountain with a heavy pack a few days a week. Um, it's just part of, you know, being healthy. So I want to feel ready at any time to go to New Zealand, Southern Alps and hunt a tar at any time. <laughs> and that was rough, man. Yesterday I um, was, was hunting and, and I've been hiking. There's a, there's a small mountain just, just next to us um, that gives you about 400 meters of elevation. And, and I've been doing that with my daughter on, my, on the front, front pack and then, yeah, hiking over the weekend, I was thinking I really need to start doing that with my hunting boots on because that extra weight around your feet makes makes all the difference. <laughs> it does. It's a little different, you know. And wherever I'm going to have calluses and, and all that, I want those now. So I'm not, like, picking them up later. So I try to mimic it as best I can what it's going to actually be like when I'm out there uh, chasing elk or doing whatever it is, you know. Yeah, man. And, and so you've got plenty of videos of you guys in the gym, um, smashing out dynamic lifts. How do you reckon that that dynamic high density sort of stuff flows through for those, those big efforts on the hill? Yeah. You know, I started doing CrossFit, I want to say eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So before that, I, I just always would lift weights you know, hike, run, bike. I rode my bike to work uh, an hour each way every day for like four years uh, when I used to be an accountant in downtown Portland in, when I lived in Oregon. You know, I've, I always feel like, you know, activity is important. But when I started doing CrossFit style workouts where it was just random every day, everything from pull-ups to barbell work to gymnastics work um man i just i felt like i grew 20 years younger i um and on the mountain you know i don't think that so i i experimented a little bit where i only did like your kind of crossfit style workouts for general physical preparedness and and i and i i would do those workouts five days a week i'd follow the program at the local gym where i would go hang out and it was like family and you all work out together so it's shared suffering so you like <laughs> bond with everyone there and you walk away from the workouts uh feeling like broken but then you have to go back the next day because all your buddies and stuff are are expecting you to show up and, and you don't want to be the one that's too weak to show up so it really did help me push my fitness to another level having like sort of a family almost there. And, and I, they were like a family for me for sure. Um, 
And so I loved it for so many reasons. And, but I think that when I, when I actually went into the mountains and started hiking at elevation and carrying a heavy pack and going 17 miles in a day or more, um, CrossFit alone didn't do the trick. I mean, I could do all of it, but it was soul crushing <laughs> where now, uh, I probably do a CrossFit workout two days to three days a week. And then I hike the mountain, the actual sport specific activity I want to engage in, uh, three days a week or more. And sometimes I'll run the mountain, like trail run it, uh, with, you know, my tennies and I'll run up there and run back down, time it a couple days a week and I'll mix it up. But it's amazing hiking up a mountain with a heavy pack three days a week, maybe two to three miles, um, round trip. How much of that added to my CrossFit type workouts dramatically changes my experience in the mountains. It's like, I don't have to hike 10 or 20 miles or I don't have to do five even to have a base level of fitness so that when I hit the mountains, I can just go and go and go and feel great. The difference between doing CrossFit only is that I just was so beat down, tired, uh, and I would get sore and stay sore throughout the week and climbing a hill sucked the whole time. Now when I climb a hill, like in New Zealand, I'm just like, it's just part of every day. There's nothing, there's nothing unique about it. I do it three, four times a week and your body adapts to it. And so, um, but I will never walk away from doing the, the, the all around fitness in the gym because being able to do 30 or 41 legged squats or pistols though, that's the difference between hurting your knee, you know, hiking down some of these canyons and stuff with a heavy pack and not hurting it. It's the difference having that mobility and the strength for doing like overhead lunges. I, I don't know. Like I don't get injured. I'm almost 45. I don't get injured. I, and, and that's why I do all that stuff. It's for, for strength and for, for injury prevention, for strength conditioning. It has really little to do with the sport specific activity I want to do as far as performance goes. It's more like I don't want to get hurt. And I feel like it increases bone density. It increases my ligament and tendon strength. It increases my, my, my muscular functions. It, it, it just builds that base that then I can really stand on when I do the sport specific activity. Yeah, mate, and I think that's what's really starting to uh, escalate with the hunting world and the strength and conditioning world. I mean, you've got guys like um, like Brett Soren, you know, starting up this little tactical house, and, and, and you know, there's a few ex ex military guys that are you know into the tactical training and then also into hunting, and, and the two worlds is colliding, and and um, and of course, someone that everybody should know about it. Um, Cameron Haynes running all the time, <laughs> but then. Equally, equally so in the gym, and he's just been kitted out with a with a Sonex, um, the, little bit of kit as well. You know, like I, I find like I mean, I'll go out with some guys and we'll hang out, and they're fit, but um, they'll tweak a knee, twist an ankle, hurt their shoulder. They'll have to be out because they have some kind of shoulder surgery, shooting a heavy compound bow or or trad bow or whatever the case may be, and 
they got to pick a pack up and now they've got a hernia and you know, it's like the list goes on and on of, of guys that, that might have good cardio conditioning and, and decent cardio conditioning and they might be able to carry a pack a lot of miles. But what happens when that pack is beyond your normal load, you slip, you fall or you're, you know, if you don't have the strength for through a full range of motion, I think it's really easy to jack something up. And so I think for those reasons, plus, you know, just to prevent injury, but plus, um, I just feel good in life in general, being active. I think gymnastics are fun trying to figure out how to do rings and handstand walk. Um, I'm not good at any of that stuff, but I love playing in the gym, doing it, you know, and Cam has his more buys and tries and, you know, his, his kind of, uh, curls and, 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 uh, you know, uh, he, he, he and I have talked a bunch of times. Cam does not like to do any leg workouts at all because he runs so much. And he's like, back when I did squats and deadlifts and, you know, a lot of that stuff that I do, he's, he's like, my thighs got so big, they would rub and then they'd chafe and bleed when I did races, you know? And so I don't really care. You know, if you're Jocko Willink, you're mostly rolling on the floor and you do the same workout five days a week, like the same thing every week. Well, that works for Jocko. He loves jujitsu. And so I think everybody, I don't care what it is do what gets you excited and gets you outdoors, but try to do as much varied as you can and figure out what works for you. Yeah. And I love the concept of, of bulletproofing things. And you said about the ligaments. I tried to, you know, stupidly run the hill and, and blew up my knee and then sort of gave it a rest. And then I was again, that, that same place that I went over the weekend, walking down the hill, the knee was not liking me very much. And the, some of the unilateral lunging sort of stuff. Um, there's a great guy out there, um, knees over toes guy. He, he's keen on, on basketball jumping and, and that sort of explosive power and, and absorbing and landing. And yeah, just a few few lunges, a, a few little sort of unilateral squats and, and the knee strength came back straight away, well, not straight away, but a couple of weeks of that. And yeah, no trouble at all. And I walked, walked a massive amount of distance yesterday and, yeah, I feel feel sweet, and, and the leagues feel good today. It's it's really really good. Good, like I say, good feeling to be able to just go out there and, and do it, eh, man? Yeah, and I think some people. Uh, I mean, sadly, a lot of guys that are my age and getting older, they gave up five, ten years ago on like really pushing themselves physically, and I think that's a shame. You're, you know, um, especially in today's modern world, we we have we can have, we can live so much longer and have a much better quality of life than we used to. You know, the wild game that I take and I eat on a regular basis added to the, the physical activity and clean eating and all of that stuff just, I think gives one a much better quality of life outside of hunting. I mean, hunting is definitely a, a, a deep part of my life, but it's not my whole life. And, and there's so much that happens outside of it that I get intense pleasure out of. And, you know, if you take away someone's health, let's say they get cancer or they get, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, illness or disease, or they, they get in a severe accident, a car accident, and now they're, they're crippled in some way or, or they're sick in some way. And that's, 
that's a hard way to go through life. And I think much of the time, you know, people do the same thing to themselves in Mm. in effect, but do it slowly over a 10 year period, gaining a pound a month, you know, for, for four years, now you're 40, 50 pounds heavier than you should be. And it was insidious. It was slow. It was just incremental, just a little bit at a time, so much so that you, the first year it was 10 pounds of extra weight. The next year it's 10 more pounds. And before you know it, uh, they, by, by a war of attrition, they have lost their health. And it's a shame because it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, you know, I, I feel bad for those people that, that lose their health in some traumatic injurious way or by some disease and you think about what they would give to have it back mm-hmm. and yet so many people and, and more i'd say in america than in new zealand so many right. of us do a poor job uh we just give up we give up our wellness and our health and it's there's no excuse for that you can you no one took it from you you gave it away and you can get it back too yeah no mate um unfortunately we're we're close on the heels of the States here in New Zealand. And, and my job as an optometrist, I, I see plenty of people that are in their older years and, you know, the, the shopping list of medications and injuries and you, you start to unpack where things are and, you know, to, to try, like I said, you can't undo it, but to try to bring it back, it's, it's a long story and, and a lot of um, justifications going on. And, and, and yeah, it's difficult. But um, you, you mentioned your family there, and, and I sort of try live by the concept of no dab odds allowed. Um, is that sort of something that, that <laughs> keeps you motivated to stay in shape? Because to be able to, you know, if they run at you, catch them with that sort of stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, I you know my uh, my middle daughter is super active and and uh, very fit and craves exercise. Actually, like she's kind of like me, where you know if she sits around too much, she's got to go like punish herself physically and, you know, run up a hill or she'll design her own workout. And she's like 13 and she'll just beat herself up. And, but she has some intense conditioning in her gymnastics classes that are three hours long and they just torture these girls. And I love it. Um, (laughs) uh, My oldest though, she's more academic, but has always liked strength training and she's really strong. She does the CrossFit me and um and again going back to do what gets you excited caitlin really loves to lift heavy weight she loves to get under a barbell she loves to just crush that stuff and she's stronger than most most boys her age way stronger and so it's but that's what gets her excited now i try to make her do a little cardio you know a few days a week and she hates it (laughs) she does it she hates it but more importantly, I just, I like that she, there's something she does like and she'll get out and do it. So we'll get her doing that. And then once she's done that, she'll do a little cardio just to please me. <laughs> um, and my youngest loves dance and she's in dance like for hours a week and she's very active in that. And again, it, you know, they have some conditioning and things like that, that push them. And the rule at our house is you have to be in enrolled in some sport of some kind. And, uh, I don't care what it is, you decide, you know, Abby always flirts with wanting to quit gymnastics because it's torture and it's really hard and it's mentally difficult. I mean, I can't imagine trying to do some kind of like cartwheel on a balance beam. Like, I mean, just the thought of crushing my balls like that, just kind of, <laughs> it's, it's intimidating. Right. And so I, I'm not, 
uh, I can see why it's, there's a lot of fear in gymnastics, I think flipping off of something. And I mean, it's, you're talking serious, uh, you know, physical feats going on there. And so at times she thinks about, um, just doing track instead. Yeah. Cause then she just has to run, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, it's up to you. If you want to quit gymnastics and do track, I don't care, you know, but you have to do one or the other. And, uh, and so far she's, she stayed with the gymnastics, um, and she's really good. So, uh, I just think it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, youth today, uh, they don't, I mean, I grew up in the sticks and we caught crawdads and built tree houses and there was no, we lived in a trailer. We lived in a tent for like a year. My dad, my mom and dad had bought uh, 20 acres. We just lived in a tent out there on it. And then, then from there they started to build a house. We lived in a trailer, little tiny, tiny little like 20 foot trailer for a few, couple years. And then we got a real house kind of out there and, but there was no TV, there was no cell phones, there was no electronic anything. And, and, uh, our life was spent outside and we were really active and we were just healthier in that way. So I think nowadays, you know, especially we, we don't live in the same kind of an environment. And I find that my kids, my kids, um, you know, I end up, I end up, you know, if put keeping them in sports, if they're going to be active, you know, I wish we lived and we have in t- at times lived in the sticks a little more and in, in boondocks, but just work and stuff hasn't allowed that. So they've grown up more in a, you know, city kind of environment. Yeah. Uh, looking back on my childhood, I was a swimmer and you talk about those, you know, long hours and, and commitment to doing something hard. And I've talked about it a few times. I went to a swimming camp once and we did for the first time train three times a day and they were two, two and a half hour sessions. And I hit the wall and, and my coach made me finish the, the set and, it's probably the greatest thing I've ever done, not being able to move for, for and taking taking <laughs> ages to do 400 meters, which would usually take I don't know, five or five or six minutes. But you know, you you said about your daughter's a bit like you. She doesn't like to sit down, she likes to get out. How did being an accountant, you know, how did you balance that part of your life? <laughs> um, well, I started. Uh, I've always been doing two or three things at the same time. So when I was in college, I owned a roofing and siding company all through college. So I did construction and we built houses and stuff later after I graduated from college and I got a degree in accounting and uh, information systems, I went to work doing more audit work, both IT security and, and regular, like, uh, I guess, business process audits and it worked well. And then I started using the money I made from that. I built a tree house that my wife and I moved into and we lived in for like 10 years. And that was simply because we were cheap and I didn't see the point in buying a real house. So we just <laughs> built a tree house on my parents' property and we lived in that. And she's a sport. She has a degree in interior design. So she helped build it. She was working. I was working. We had a couple kids. In the meantime, we had all this income from the college degree and the construction company. And uh, we bought, property, lots of property and started to develop it, built over, you know, subdivide oversized lots. And then we'd build houses on that and sold them. And we put all our money into one big project, 
Um, it was, a, it was to build like a bunch of row homes in this block and we'd have a couple million when we were done. And then the house, the, the economy crashed the housing market fell out. We couldn't get a construction loan. We were leveraged too much. We put too much, everything into that one project. It was 2008 and everything crashed here. And, uh, we ended up selling those lots and just barely getting some of our original money back. So you know, I was always kind of trying things, making money, hustling on the side and then failing and trying something else. And, and some things you, you do okay. And some you don't. And eventually, um, you know, as the kids got older, um, I just, after the housing crash, I just said, you know what, I'm just going to relax a little bit and mostly work on one career, one, one thing. I, I kind of got, you know, I got slapped hard with that real estate market in the U S at that time. So, and I've been running hard for years. So I just, for like eight years, I just started doing, put myself into my career and I read uh, the four hour work week mm-hmm. by Tim Ferriss about halfway through that. And he talked about, you know, working from home, you know, um, and working, you know, becoming more efficient. And so I, I messed around with that and his whole premise was, you know, um, get more effective in your day to day, deliver more at work and negotiate more free time so that you could do other things that you're interested in. And so that's what I did. I, I read the book, followed the plan. Um, within about a year I was working from home three days a week. And by working from home, I mean, I did nothing at home. I, I, I worked two days at the office and I was able to accomplish in two days at the office what I was doing in five days at the office before, following kind of his tricks and stuff. And and I was just like, at first, the newfound freedom, all I did was go to the gym, beach, hunt, hang out, when, like on my spare time. I always had to have a cell phone with me just because I'd answer an email here or there through, on the days I was at home. But for the most part, things just sailed along at all these automatic processes in place and it worked really well and it was great for a long time and then I got bored sort of like Groundhog's Day you know where I just was like uh, there was nothing fulfilling about it but I had a lot of money and a lot of free time and that's when I started um, I, I went ahead and got a computer a new computer to to film hunts and like edit them and make movies and I was messing around with that for fun and after, you know, I did that and I could because I had all that spare time because my job I had built that way, but I spent less and less time going to the gym and the beach and more time like learning a new skill. And then I put the film in the full draw film tour here in the U S and people liked it. And I started doing a couple of podcast episodes and then, uh, and then it blew up And within a year, I was at a point where I, I had enough income from companies that wanted to support the podcast that I could actually quit my other job and make less, quite a bit less, but make enough that um, I was okay with it. And at the time my wife had just, you know, at the the time all this was going on, she was battling cancer and all the money and the free time and stuff really didn't have that much meaning anymore uh, in the face of cancer and her potential potentially losing her. And I 
all my values and, you know, everything I had been working for completely changed. You know, I had no debt because we had worked really hard on that. We had a bunch of money in savings and I was in a position where I could actually quit. We had so much savings and no debt that, that I didn't need a huge income and we could quit and I could actually do the podcast full time and see what happens with it. And first year we, you know, within a couple of years, you know, I, I got to the point where I made more now than I do than I did before. And uh, I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about. So in some ways, it's like the American dream. It's not without its, its you know, um, stress and, and its frustrations. But and it's been hard to manage all of that. But at the same time, I, I get to spend weeks and weeks at, you know, I don't know how many days I hunted last year or was out in the wilderness um, unplugged, but it was a lot. And that much time out there really puts life into perspective when you come back. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think we're meant to live out there. <laughs> you know, we're not meant to live in the city like we do. We're not meant to live in civilization the way we do. At least I'm not. Uh, so I don't, as far as balancing it goes, I don't think I do a very good job. Um, <laughs> I'm either like, full into hunting or I'm podcasting or I'm filmmaking or I'm all family time, but I don't feel like I balance it well at all. Nice. But I find a way. That's a hell of a story, man. And, and I guess that's one of my aims of, of, of my podcast is to just show people um, that things can be done. And like, I liked it that you said there, you know, if when you, when you're going after your passion, things go, go wrong and, and you have to retake, take stock again. May the something you brought up there was when you got that computer, um, and you had to learn how to make videos and, and use the programs. What is it like for you doing something new and getting that beginner mindset back? Well, when I um, when I turned nineteen, I went on a mission for my church. I'm yeah. an LDS, and uh, I went to Japan, Okayama, Japan, and I worked out of Hiroshima for two years, and so. It was like um, sink or swim. I was in an apartment <laughs> with three dudes who didn't speak an ounce of English. Like they were all Japanese hardcore. And, you know, it's funny. Like it seems like every Japanese person can speak some English. I swear I got stuck with the only three dudes who cared nothing for English, who, who flunked it through high school and college. And so we're hanging out in this apartment and it was you figure out the language or you don't. And I remember uh, teaching myself Japanese. No one was there to teach me. You know, I had books and I took notes and I was motivated. I wanted to be able to communicate and um, English wasn't an option. And I, I did truly want to learn the language and, and speak to the people. And, um, and I taught myself Japanese. And that from that point on uh, throughout the whole, my whole life, it's, I, I believe that especially in today's day and age with YouTube and books and online classes, you can teach yourself to do almost anything. Like college is a joke. There, there's really no need for university for, for a million reasons. You can teach yourself everything, you name it. So, um, you know, I think I grew up fortunately in a generation just, just on the edge where we start, we were just starting to get you know, resources to teach ourselves things. Um, and uh, when I picked up the new computer, you know, for years I had, 
I remember getting my first uh, Apple computer and it had iMovie on it, mm. came with it. And we filmed some hunts, my buddies and I, and then we made a little cheesy movie out of it. And then we had a barbecue at uh, our buddy's house after elk season was over. And then we, we'd force our family and friends and wives to watch <laughs> crap movies of our hunts. Um, and we did that every year for like four or five years. And uh, we were trying to be photographers and I'd take the photos from the hunts and I'd put them into a book and you could type them on blurb. I could type them into the online app and then it would actually ship me a, 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 a hard copy book of the stories of the hunt with the photos. And I'd give those out to the guys at the end of the barbecue, you know, and it was like, so each year I was getting into this point where I was making some cheesy movies and then giving them the books and it was just a hobby and it was for fun. But like I said, my wife got cancer and, and my ideas changed and I decided, you know what, I really want to get better at this. And I have the time. I had the free time to indulge in learning something. You know, my kids were at a certain age. I was working at home all the time. And, and I was like, you know, I'm going to dive into this. And so I remember going, what is it, lynda.com. And downloading courses, it was like 50 bucks for a course or 20. And I was getting them off of like Ripple Effects, I think is one of them, websites. I mean, this is so weird because now there's all kinds of options out there. But at the time, you had to kind of search and there were some online courses. I downloaded them all. And uh, I had one computer open with like Final Cut and I bought the app and the computer and all. I remember my wife's like, you want to spend like $3,000 on a computer and, and then you want to buy like, $8,000 in cameras and you don't even know how to do this. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't care. You know, we have the money and I want, this is what I, I wish. And she's like, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, I'm going to make movies for what? For myself. <laughs> and, uh, she's like, whatever. And so I bought all that stuff and I literally was like watching the video over here and then making the video over here. And, um, and, um, I just, started to teach myself. I feel like if you want to learn any skill, you, you know, you, you got to know your limits. Like I've learned over time that I have an aptitude for certain things and some things I really suck at. And, and I could spend a lot of time teaching myself how to do something I really suck at. And I'll probably still suck at it even if, after I've learned, but things that you're naturally gifted at and you dive into, they can be deeply rewarding. Cause I think you're going to, you're going to, you're going to pick it up and you're going to pick it up pretty quick. And it wasn't like I had to find motivation to do it. I just wanted it that bad. And so I think, I think, man, we live in a world today where you name it, figure it out. You know, if you're interested in it and I ended up calling, um, Cody Kellum over at born and raised outdoors cool. and they were, they lived a couple hours from me in Oregon and Cody was doing the full draw film tour and he was doing videos for born and raised outdoors. And I said, Hey, I got a video. I'm just some guy and I've made a video. Um, I'd love to sit down with you and learn some things. And he said, yeah, send it to me. So then he watched it and he called me back and he said, Hey, yeah, we're going to do a, a weekend filmmaking class. Do you want to come? And I'm like, yeah. So I went down to that met, a whole ton of people that including like South Cox and others. And, and we sat down and I 
I made uh, movies that weekend and I took all the stuff I had learned and, you know, learned even more. And that really motivated me to like make a movie movie for, for a film tour, for a film event. And that, that kicked that thing off and, and it took off from there. But yeah, I, I'm not afraid to like dive into something and completely fail doing it. Um, you know, I went to New Zealand and I'm like, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, maybe I completely fail on this trip, but you know, who cares? It's all part of that adventure. Nice. Was it your first time over here? No. Um, so the first time I went over there, I had, I got an invite to go over there with mountain ops. So nice. mountain ops, Casey and Jordan, who are good friends of mine, and I work out of the mountain ops headquarters here. Um, they, they're like, Hey, we're going to New Zealand and we're going to hunt, uh, uh, tar. And I, I had been watching people for years hunt tar in the mountains and just people always talk about the stag and I'm like, yeah, whatever stag. They're like, they're kind of like elk, but different. I don't know. But the goat species, the tar that like, I've always been fascinated by the mountain and the mountain goats and the mountain species. And I don't know. It's just something about it. It's cool. And so I wanted to experience it. And here in the United States, if you want to hunt or Canada, if you want to hunt mountain goat or bighorn sheep, you better be rich. I mean, you can't afford, you might draw a goat tag in a lower 48 state. Um, I've never drawn one and I've been applying since I was like 18, you know, so <laughs> more than 25 years. So I, I, I think it's a really, it's a tough thing to experience here if you want to. And if you're into it, elk and deer are everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, why would I go to New Zealand to just hunt a type, a type of elk when I can do tons of that here? But the goat thing, the goats not accessible to me where tar are, are, you know, that's something I could afford to do. So but I, I really wanted to experience that. And so Casey and Jordan are like, come on, let's go. We're just going to go for four days. Uh, it's short and uh, it'll be cool. So I went down there with Duncan from Cordrona Safari. Yep. Yep. And uh, it's Duncan was, great guy. <laughs> he was super cool and uh, super gracious. And he put us up in his, in his, uh, in one of the lodges there. And we went out, and I went out with uh, Sam Manson mm -hmm. and he chased uh, goats. And Sam was just a stud. He's just a fun, fun, awesome dude, tough guy. And it was really fun. It was like hunting with buddies, you know. And we, uh, we chased tar up there for four days and I just got hooked. And so that was my first time. First of all, it took me two days to get there and two days to fly home because it's like <laughs> the longest trip on the planet. <laughs> Did you like, have to go far Australia as well? I was like four days of travel and four days of hunting. It just was way too short. I felt like I spent most of my time on an airplane. So the second time when I went, I'm like, okay, I'm doing it all on my own and uh, I'm going to fly there and, and I'm going to stay like 12 days in country. and and we did and it was freaking awesome so the first time was too short and i just got a tiny taste and it was a totally different experience um you know where we where we flew we we took a chopper ride in for our drop camp for the first eight days 
in the Southern Alps and this on the second trip and just getting dropped off and left there was a whole <laughs> different kind of feeling. And it was late, late in the year. And so there was like two feet of snow, um, had just dumped and it was just a whole nother level of rugged, you know? Yeah. And I saw uh, one of your posts, you, you contacted Rumi Warren cause he'd been through where you were before yes. or something like that. Yeah. So it was interesting cause we called different people and talked to different friends and, and people were gracious and reached out to me through social that are from New Zealand. And I got lots of people um, kind of helping us out with ideas and places to go. And one of the people that was really helpful was Zion, uh, Zion yes. Pilgrim. Yeah, I know um, his page here. Yeah. yeah. And so Zion was really cool. He's been on my podcast back, back when um, the DOC was going to do the tar coal. Yeah. You know, we, we did a show together. He came, he was uh, in, in uh, well, we were able to do a, couple shows but zion um was was going to help me land on the west coast somewhere mm -hmm. but the weather just was it was so late we i think we hunted in june um and it was just gnarly so we decided to to change plans and go to the southern alps instead and uh we just got a hold of a helicopter outfit and said hey we want to get dropped off somewhere and there was a couple of places on a map and we picked one and, uh, and then he dropped us off. I mean, it was pretty simple. It was like we rented a car, you know, and driving on the other side of the road was awkward. And that took like, that took like at least four hours to get the hang of maybe more like two days. And then we flew down and got on the chopper and got dropped off and had a wonderful trip. It was, it was super eye-opening and we learned a lot new zealand's mountains can kill you there's just no you it's just they are they're they're dangerous there's just no way around it and we we found ourselves in some dangerous situations multiple times just you know you, you you're you're hunting you're in the moment um i don't know it, it, there's there, there were places we went where, you know, going back, I won't do what we did last time. I won't do it again the same way. I mean, we needed full on crampons and ice axes and, and, and ropes and stuff for some of the stuff we did. And once I'm getting into that kind of situation, um, that's just too rich for my blood. I don't, I don't need to die trying to kill a goat. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So next time I go, I'll be much more uh, circumspect, more careful. And we'll, we've learned a lot, you know, mm -hmm. but we kind of experienced two different hunts on the trip. We did one that was that kind of drop in just random thing in rugged conditions. And then we talked to Remy uh, halfway through the trip. Well, toward two thirds through the trip, we, we, we talked to Remy and he gave us like six spots to check out. And it's funny, like every single one of them is listed on the DOC website. Like you can just go there and it actually dee, 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 says go to these places. But it was nice to have Remy like talk to us about, you know, some of the more favorite spots on that list. Mm -hmm. But none of them are not public record. Like everything that, that he mentioned, you know, was right there. 
but um, and access points, they just tell you where to drive and park. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, the service that's there. And so that was really neat. And the hut system was mind blowing. Um, you can just not have that here in the United States. So all of it was a cool adventure. And, uh, but we ended up driving to a spot and hiking in to an area and there were no, uh, cliffs there. There was no, like, you're going to die any moment. There was hardly any snow and it. And there was billions of tar. So it was like, and it was funny because we'd run into other hunters coming out from there and uh, we're looking for them. You know, do they have optics? Do they have backpacks? You know, I'm just kind of curious their hunting style and their experience. And there were a bunch of Kiwis that were coming out and uh, mostly young, young guys, maybe uh, early twenties or younger even. Probably on uni holidays or something. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they, they're, I couldn't see binoculars on any of them. There was like four groups uh, that came out. I'm like, and they were all carrying, like one of them was carrying a stag, like, and they just cut the back half off, like right at the, the waist. And, and he's just carrying it out over his shoulders, like no pack. He's got the hooves on it and the hair and everything. And like, you didn't break it down at all. He just, just cut it and just slung it over his shoulder and he's hiking it out and he's got a gun over his, and I'm like, what is the obsession with carrying up the animal hole around here and no backpacks? Uh, we we turned turn the animal into a backpack. <laughs> yeah. That, that just, it, it's just not comfortable. I don't get it, but it's every magazine, every photo, like it was funny. It's, it's a definitely a, you know, a, it's what you do over there. And, but they left uh, tons of the meat, which is really foreign to us over here. First of all, it's illegal and you lose your hunting license and your weapon and stuff like that. But over there, it's like, yeah, we shot a couple stags and we grabbed a hind quarter and, you know, and we're going to eat it this weekend with our college buddies. And you're like, and you left everything else. And, but we were asking them, did you see any tar? And they're like, no, no, there's no tar here. Like they're miles away we sat up and glassed we saw billions of tar with our with our with our uh, optics and it it just um it, you know and that happens here too where we'll go out and guys will be like there's not any elk anywhere and we're in elk all day and and so there's definitely a learning curve to it and and uh you know and and if you're just kind of walking around and meandering and if you're in where the stag are, you're probably not where the tar are, you know? So, you know, it's a different kind of thing, but it was interesting to run into other hunters and um, we were, we were really kind of like, ah, oh, man, Remy, why'd you send us here? Like these other groups, there's not a single tar. They're like, no, nah, they buggered off and went off to this other mountain range in the winter time. <laughs> we're like, why? And they said, oh, the snow, you know? And I'm like, we only found them in the snow and in the other place. And so it was pretty, pretty, uh, but my point was, is that was so easy to do. You land, you walk in and you're having an adventure and you're chasing tar. And we saw way more tar there, way more tar there in those grasslands than we did in the mountain Alps. But those mountain Alps are alluring because just the rugged nature of it. And just the tar up in those cliffs, it was, I don't know. I can't decide which one I liked better, but the other, the other way was bow hunting 
the grasslands was bow hunting gold. Mm. Those cliffs, we were shooting tar from 200 yards trying to get them to fall off a cliff so we could get them in the bluffs below because they were not gettable up there. Um, so totally, I mean, it was like two different worlds, two different uh, scenarios of hunting, but in but in the for the same species it was pretty cool yeah and, and i guess in those main areas those ones that you see on the sort of dock website the if they're under helicopter pressure you see a lot more scrub balls and even, even you say about deer and tar and not in the same place there's a spot that um, madam madam uh, and i have gone a couple of times and you sort of walking through the deer country and then you see these little rocky outcrops and i remember one day going ah oh, that'd be great if if some animals walked across, sure enough, there's about six or seven down, you know, it was a bachelor group walked walked around. Unfortunately for us, it was our early days and we made the absolute rookie error of we're shooting on a 30 degree angle and we aimed high. And so, of course, we both shot over the shoulders of, of these animals, got back, to, I think even in, in the hut that we went and stayed the night, there was a magazine that sort of had about, you know, shooting on an angle, aim low. And it was like, oh, it would have been useful to know just, you know, yeah. three, three hours earlier. Mate, you, you said about how the mountains could can kill you, and there's and there's plenty of cases of, of that around. And you know, been in contact with Adam Greentree, try try to get him on, and, and hopefully we can do that to hear his sort of side of the story. Because twice now he's he's got into a little bit of grief. Um, yeah, and that, and that's I guess with the the tarkal and and finding value in our animals, because as as you know, they're classified as pests over here. And, despite docs you know great efforts in, in, in making things accessible they're also under the pump from from various political angles that they need to get rid of all these uh, inverted common pests and that's sort of something that's been discussed on a number of new zealand hunting podcasts is how do we bring value to our animals and you know also you said you know the first time you went with an outfitter and then the next time you sort of did it yourself and, and, and contacted a number of outfitters, you know, guys like Remy Warren as well, coming here, doing it by himself. How, you know, what's your perspective on what New Zealand needs to do? Because obviously it's great that you guys come here. It's great that you guys, um, you know, promote our animals and, and bring value to them. But then at the same time, the flip side is people die on, on the mountains and, and sort of New Zealand hunters are scratching their heads of, you know, how do we make sure that these people come here are safe, you know, that, oh. And from an economic perspective, that the outfitters aren't, aren't missing out. You know, what, what's your perspective on that? Um, man, you know, it's a couple of questions there. On the safety thing, I really struggle with that because um, you know, I'm I'm not going to jump out of an airplane. I'm not interested in doing what Andy Stump does and I'm not going to jump off a cliff in a fly suit and it's not my thing now or paragliding or anything like that. Yeah. But do I want, and it's dead, it's dangerous. People die all the time doing it. Do I want, um, do I want to stop other people from doing it because it's dangerous? No, it's his life. If he wants to risk it jumping off a cliff, I think he should be able to decide that he wants to risk it jumping off. It's his thing. Hmm. If a guy wants to go and hunt Wyoming and, and he wants to do it on, on, you know, federal public land here in the United States, then, and it's designated wilderness, 
I think a guy should be able to do it. Now, Wyoming, ironically, is the only state in the United States where it's illegal to go and hunt the wilderness without a guide. Mm-hmm. I think that's BS. I think it's garbage. Um, and their reason for that is for safety. That way you're required to use a guide if you're, if you're not from Wyoming. But if you're not from Montana, you can go on wilderness and hunt there. Mm-hmm. They have grizzlies. They have all the dangerous stuff. They have all the same thing. I, I don't like regulating people's safety. Um, if someone wants to um, go out and experience and risk their life, do some mountaineering, I think they should be able to make that choice. It's their life. So I don't like the idea of regulating for safety mm-hmm. per se. I think that, you know, um, educating people is good. I think having, um, you know, uh, I thought that, you know, things like, you know, classes or, or even published content to help people understand the, the dangers of going out uh, is, is important. Education is important. I don't, I just don't like the idea of, I guess, regulating for safety. So that said, when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to valuing wildlife in New Zealand, you know, you guys are unique in the sense that um, New Zealand evolved in in isolation for millions of years. And so your species on your island are so unique to just New Zealand. It's it's really mind-blowing. And, and now to have so many invasive species live there and threaten that ecosystem. I, I made a joke the other day. I was talking to my brother and I was like, you know what? New Zealand's like a virgin that's been dumped in like – a prison system, you know, like without any protection, like, I mean, evolving in isolation, like it has, there's animals that just didn't co-evolve with some other ruthless species on the planet that, that, that got all the, the protections and and abilities to, you know, to withstand something, for example, a possum, Mm -hmm. but like in your country, you didn't, those animals didn't co-evolve with a possum. You put a possum on there and they have no defenses against it. So I understand like you guys have a really, really tough road ahead because the world has become a global place Mm. and yet New Zealand didn't evolve in a way to cope with that kind of reality. And so, um, you know, the amount that you have to spend to manage these invasive species is, and what you have to do to protect the existing species that are, that have, that are on the verge of extinction or that are struggling with it. And it's a tall order. And I don't know if it can be achieved. I think it's a noble thing to do. And it's something that New Zealand is actively engaged in and should be. I think we should be in the business of preserving species now that, that we have the potential to do so as, as a human species. But I, I don't know where to begin there. I can say this, that I think that it's a political football. It's a, it's a joke to, to say that we need to eliminate the tar in order to protect uh, our native tussocks and, and grasslands and other species while you have some, I don't know, 40 million sheep or something running across the country. It's just, that's just, that's just bullshit. You can't have, you can't sit there and have this, 
have it both ways. You can't tell me that you're worried about the environment and then have 40 million domestic species tromping on the same land. And then you're worried about what, 30,000 tar, 60,000 tar. It's like, that's, that's not having, it's not scratching the surface of, of the, an environmental danger in, in, you know, when, when you put it next to the other. So if you're not going to regulate the domestic species and their impact, it seems like it's it feels completely disingenuous for the government to attack tar as as it seems more like you know a a party that's trying to virtue signal and mm-hmm. gain votes based on some kind of noble ideal but is really not concerned about the reality it's it's sort of like in america where you have these politicians that say we need to adopt this green new deal and save the planet when our carbon emissions is nothing compared to something like, let's say, China. So why aren't we working to, to work with China to reduce carbon emissions? Because even if we did all the things that we're talking about doing in the United States and bankrupting our country to do it, we still wouldn't, we still wouldn't actually affect the condition at all, hardly at all. So I just don't find it a genuine interest when you have these groups that are trying to eliminate tar. I don't feel like it's coming from an honest place. Um, what can be done? I feel like, um, you know, in the United States, an animal that is worth money is safe. Hmm. Like period. If it doesn't have a monetary value, it's really tough for an animal to have a future. You know, bighorn sheep are 50 grand if you want to hunt one here, you know, on a guided sort of hunt. And man, that makes sheep worth a lot. Like people really would like to see bigger sheep herds and more sheep when when people will pay that much for a hunt. So I think assigning value to wildlife is is important. And that what shocks me is in New Zealand, you gotta have a fishing license to fish for brown trout, but you don't have to have a hunting license to hunt. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at it, I'm like, okay, we, when I was there with Ryan, we took home a chamois and we took home four tar, two tar a piece. And so I look at that, actually it was five tar, but I look at that and I'm like, well, in the States as a non-resident, I would probably end up paying at a minimum, four to $500 per tag. So for every bull tar I, I take, I'd, I'd be spending, let's say 500 bucks, 450 for a tag. For a sheep tag or a goat tag rather, it's a lot more. It's like $1,200 or 1,800. So Ryan and I coming into New Zealand, we, were, we would gladly pay, happily pay, our four to 800 bucks for a tag. And we would certainly be more, I guess, circumspect about which one we take if we have to pay for a tag for each one, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and maybe it's maybe it's just a hunting license you get. And that hunting license, though, also sort of would, if you're required to get a hunting license in New Zealand, it you would then demonstrate some proficiency with a weapon. Uh, and you may, in order to hunt and get your hunting license, you would you need to take a class on safety in the mountains and mountaineering. And there, there you would have to pass some basic level of proficiency as far as being safe 
in New Zealand's rugged country. So I, I think that, man, just implementing a North American model of conservation in New Zealand would go, go a long way. I mean, you would have a hunting license process. The, the, the government would get paid through those licenses. And for each tag, I mean, Ryan and I would have spent a couple thousand dollars on tags that would go straight to the management of tar. Right. And same thing for other species. And then you would know what your harvest rates are in some of those areas. And you could manage that wildlife. You can say, well, we need this many tags and, you know, and, and I don't know that it, I just know that it works here. Mm. I don't know, you know, that it works in New Zealand, but it seems like you have fishing licenses. So why wouldn't you have a hunting license and a process for managing game? And like I said, I, I would be happy to pay it. Now, if you're a resident of, of some States and you want to hunt, I don't know, deer, you know, it might be $25 for the tag. So it's not like New Zealanders would have to pay a ton of money for a license and tag, right? Pass that expense on to the non-residents. You know, and if you have prefectures or different cities or areas or, or unit boundaries, it's like, well, you're a resident in this spot, but you're not a resident in this spot. You know, you pay a little bit more fee than the person who lives in this local region. And that's how we do it with state, each state here in the United States. Each state has its own, uh, you know, I pay out of state non-resident fees. Now, if I'm, if I'm going to Canada, I got to pay not only like non-resident fees, I also have to pay alien fees, you know, as a non, a non-citizen of Canada. So to me, it's like, man, with all the hunters that want to come to New Zealand and experience this, uh, I think most hunters are on board with the concept of game management and on the concept of, of conservation. I think we all want to give back. And so in the form of a tag and a, and a license, we, I think we would gladly pay for those. And I don't know what the statistics are, what the number of, of non, you know, of alien hunters that come to, to New Zealand are. Um, and I don't know what that revenue stream could look like, but I, I suspect it could be quite large. Uh, and, you know, your model seems more, and I don't know a lot. This is just me. You asked the question. So here yeah, it goes. I'm keen to hear your, your opinion. That's right. Um, you know, you have the outfitting and guiding business and that's, that's a totally different animal from, from the do it yourself kind of hunt that I just did. Mm. Right? Now I think I can tell people about how to do that hunt on their own. And a lot of guys are going to try and do it. And then there's going to be guys that have no interest in doing what I did. None whatsoever. It was too hard. It, 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 it's, there's too many unknowns and the animal's not big enough and all kinds of things. Right. And those guys are going to be happy to go and pay for a, a different kind of opportunity where they get to stay in a lodge and they get an outfitter and a guide. And that person, they're looking for a different experience. Mm -hmm. And I think you can have both in the country. You, you, people can still, you can still have a license and tag required for each person and then at the same time, you have your, your guiding and outfitting business. Um, I, I don't see how they can't coexist. We have it here in the United States that way, and it coexists here. But to me, if you actually treated the animals like they had 
like they were being managed and they had economic value, then you would, you know, as far as from a state sanctioned point of view, then um, I think that you would have a, a situation where um, the society would value that animal more. Mm. It's, uh, I like what you said about lo- locality, not, not having to sort of, um, fund fund the area, and, and I guess that's in the, you spoke about New Zealanders coming out with hindquarters or, or just back straps or just ahead and all that sort of stuff, and that and that goes to the fact that many New Zealand hunters and, and there's somewhere around 150,000 of them or so, just you know they a lot of them get out hunting every weekend, and and then I guess that would be that would be the pushback of that now now I can't go out every weekend, but that's where maybe a licensing system, you know, we don't have a season because they're, because they're, they're classes of pests, but a licensing system means that you, you um, sh- show some sort of, you know, level of competency to go hunt and then, and then, then you're into it. And then that creates a pathway. And, you know, one of the things that we've been t- talking about on many of the podcasts is that people need to join New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association, so that those 160 odd thousand are on are on a page. You know, there's not 20,000 20, or six thousand, might even be that low people that are on a page. And so when when the political football comes out, you can go, oh, well, hang on a minute, um, right. we're, we're here and we're we're a good proportion of the country. Um, you're, you're having a massive effect on us. And then also when you talk about that preparedness to pay, um, and thankfully with the last government. Um, the field Lomopity, yeah, same as your elk, um, they, were, they were donated by Theodore Roosevelt back in the day. Um, they have a foundation and they are a sole herd of special interest. And there's a, a seeker up here where I am now in Hawke's Bay that, you know, been pushing and pushing to become a herd of special interest. We've got pockets of rooster, pockets of samba, the tar, you know, the tar foundation really kicked into life last year. And, you know, they're, they're probably next on the list to, to get into this herd of special interest, but currently the political football is saying no way. Um, they're, they're a pest, and, and it's just such a shame that we can't come together on that. So, yeah, I think a, a licensing for locals, and then and then I don't know what we do about internationals, but, you know, and then our challenge is who manages it, which we, we're just not prepared for. But, of course... We've we've got short memories. Our history of of hunting is is you know our last fifty years, and prior to that, it was a a license, a tagged tagged system, and and we, and we forget that that that's how it all started out. Um, so yeah, no, that, that's really good good input, and and it's yeah. good to get an outsider's perspective. Because I think uh, you know in the United States, for instance, you can get a in certain states you can get a duck a duck stamp and a license to hunt ducks. And then you have a daily bag limit. You you can only take so many ducks per day. And so it's like, why not do that? You know, if, if, especially with a lot of locals that get out every weekend, they get out and they hunt and they get after it, you know, having a system where um, people get out and, and actually hunt and they have a daily bag limit, let's say that's their only restriction. They can hunt, year round and they can hunt but it's still a licensing process but man for us international people for for a non-resident individual someone from the north coming to the south or something like that i mean why not 
have a separate system for those people. It is a valuable resource that New Zealand has. It's worth money. It's worth something like that to someone from outside. Let them come and contribute. Uh, they would, I, like I said, I would be happy. I would be happy to pay dollars to acquire a license and tag to be in New Zealand and hunt tar. Happy to do it. And I, I just think a lot of international folks feel the same way that it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I mean, I'm already spending X dollars to get there and to do the hunt a little bit more for a tag and license wouldn't, wouldn't deter me at all from coming. And then New Zealand would benefit from not just, you know, my tourist dollars, but they would benefit from the actual tag and license sales as well for the, for the reason I'm there. So I think it's, I just think it's, kind of a no brainer. And, mm. um, and, and then the one thing that does strike me as odd, but I can see it, but I think it's hard for anyone who doesn't hunt, you, you know, you have your, your non hunter type. Um, you know, these non hunters, they, they don't like to see animals shot right? They, they have a soft spot and they like to see animals suffer or be killed. And then they, they're, if they are, they want to see it done for some kind of, you know, not just for like joy killing, but you're doing it because you want to provide, you want to eat it. You know, you want, you want healthy organic meat from the wild. You want to be, take part in where your meat comes from, that sort of thing. And when you can leave the animal behind, shoot it, you know, grab the cape and leave or the horns or whatever. I think that it, it sort of devalues that animal, not only by the hunter, but it also does it to the outside looking in. It's hard for them to look at hunting as a reasonable and viable activity when you can just leave the meat behind. So having some wanton waste, you know, regulations against um, the the just shooting and leaving meat, I think is, I mean, I think it's good. I think it's good to have that because it encourages people to to value that that animal in more ways than just as a trophy. Mm-hmm. And and then when that meat is obtained. It, let's say you're not a big fan of whatever meat, tar meat. I love tar meat, by the way. It's freaking awesome. <laughs> I think I'm like, cause the way it smells and the way it tastes totally different. <laughs> uh, but to me, you bring that meat home and when my freezer's over full, cause I've done more hunting, that, that meat never goes to waste. It always goes to a family member or a friend or someone in the community. And at each time that happens, it changes that person's view toward hunting. It's like, I just gave a bunch of canned bear meat away to tons of friends that don't hunt and have never hunted and can't understand why I bear hunt. And they've all popped open their cans of, of bear meat and they've like been blown away by how delicious it is. And, and now they have a much better understanding of why I like bear, why I like bear hunting. And I think that that connection to the food is vital. It's important. And so having a process in the country where you actually require people at least to, to, you know, salvage 
you know, backstraps and quarters or, you know, some part of it or 50% of the animal or something. I think it, it just down the road, it, it's a policy and a pro- practice that, that instills in people value for the animal beyond its trophy value. And yeah, I guess when, when you're talking about the, the non-hunters, the indifferent, the people that are indifferent to hunting and, and indifferent to where their meat comes from, you know, that then call for, well, we've got to get rid of these because they're a pest and they're having an effect on, on the population with, without, and it goes back to the economics of it, without a market for tar meat, you know, um, we, we've got a wild animal recovery organisation here, that, which when the venison market's doing well, which it is at the moment, they, they take the animals off the hill, but when there's nothing for tar meat, they just leave them there. And, you know, that again goes back to that awareness. It's like, well, we, we place no value on this. We've got no established market for this. And this is the reality of what happens with that, that indifference goes, well, where do, where do we go with this then? And, 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 you know, for the sake of our, you know, original ecology, which you say it's, I love your analogy of the, the virgin thrown into to prison because you know it's crass, but that's that is kind of what what helicopter culling is. It's crass, it, it, and it's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I see the predicament because, for example, we have a a real you do too, but we have a real pig problem here in the yeah. United States, especially down Texas and other areas, and those pigs are destroying our 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 you know, our countryside and, and completely they're threatening ground nesting type birds and animals. And I mean, they're just, they're just, they, they're just, and they just multiply like rats. I mean, they're they're And so we have this problem and, and, um, you know, there is a market for them if they trap them down there in, in Texas. And, and they've been doing a lot more of that where they try to trap these pigs and then, or they shoot them and they drop them off at a dog food butcher place or something. Yeah. But any pig below a certain size is, is a, has no value because it takes too much. It's too much to butcher them and get the meat off of it. There's not enough meat there for the, to, to justify the process for what the meat is worth monetarily. And so, the same is true from what I understand, like with a stag, you can kill so many per hour, haul them out with a helicopter. And there's a certain amount of dollar worth, uh, in terms of the venison. Whereas if you fly out and shoot a bunch of tar, by the time you fly them in, you know, and you butcher them, there's just not enough meat and, and monetary value from that to justify any kind of harvest. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a, and when they're just, they're so robust and they can adapt so well. I mean, I understand the difficulty of, of managing tar, uh, you know, and I, but at the end of the day, I, I do feel like, man, if you value the animal, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's protein, uh, value. And that becomes part of, conversation and part of life i think that it it adds a lot of um validity to the hunt and the activity of hunting and the importance of it in the world today and gives it it makes it relevant makes it uh, relevant today not not as some anachronistic activity from the past but it's actually a very viable and and reasonable thing to to do in today's world and 
if people are required to bring that meat home, then they're going to hunt responsibly, get the meat, bring it home. And, and then if they don't like it or they can't, have, they're going to share it. They're going to donate it to some place. They're going to find a use for it. We do it here with whitetail deer, elk, everything. I think those systems would come into place naturally over time. And I, I just think that, you know, you can't have a conversation with someone who does not hunt and, and um, take the meat and the food source out of the question and then somehow convince them that it's relevant in today's world to engage in it. Yeah. And I guess that's another challenge that hunters face, you know, with this small minority of people pushing the vegan agenda and from environmental perspectives and all, all that sort of stuff. And um, but then in the same breath, you know, everybody's getting sick, everybody's undernourished. And it's, you know, if we could, and I know there's a, um, a lady hunter in New Zealand who's, she's sort of, um, on the up with her YouTube, and I think she might be on one of our minor TV channels as well, minor television. And yeah, she's she's calling for you know hunters to share their their excessive meat with with impoverished societies. And I think she's from Rotorua, which has has plenty of um, low socioeconomic people. And and that's sort of the movement that she's starting, and I guess adopting from some of the models you hear about in the states. And I think, like I say, that a way to get some of the greatest. Um, nutrient dense food you know it's lean it's not necessarily yeah. wrong with fat but it's lean it's packed full of iron and we've got an anemia problem in this country you know packed full of iron vitamins yeah. and, and, and just, I, just I tell you what the um, it's funny I'm more excited about hunting in the modern world now than I was five years ago as far as social acceptance goes we still have an uphill battle ahead of us but gosh man in the united states with things like meat eater the mm. program hitting netflix being mainstream you look at i mean when i posted videos or photos of bears i shot you know in 2007 8 9 10 i remember getting so much blowback every single time i shared it it was like a constant battle and now there's been so many educational shows on hunting bears and uh, we just published ours the other day, the four part bear series that we did. And we're educating people on how you cook bear and how we eat bear. And we did a podcast on canning bear meat and, and um, we published that video and I got, I got, I don't know, I think more than like 2000 comments or messages from from individuals about how much they enjoyed it and how much they learned and I got one anti-bear hunting comment one one years ago that those numbers would have been completely flipped mm -hmm. and so you know in the midst of you know in Canada they're banning the hunting of grizzly bears and we're fighting it here but you know where we're trying to implement an, a, a grizzly bear hunting season I think that we're that hunting is actually kind of winning. It might be naive, but I feel like our culture and our society here in the United States is, is waking up to the value of being outdoors, harvesting your own food, where your food comes from. And to be honest, I think a big part of that is because unlike places like New Zealand, what we do to our food in this country is, is, is embarrassing. It's, 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 it's a travesty. The GMO, the testing, the, 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 the all the steroids, the moder genetically modified foods, the, 
the chemicals. And I, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like the top 10 used foods in the U S a seven of those are banned in Canada. It's like <laughs> what we do in the United States is just disgusting. And we eat this garbage and it's killing us and we're all unhealthy. And because in the name of economics, we, our FDA, they'll prove anything as long as it doesn't kill you right away. And so it's a joke. It's a joke where New Zealand, it was like, you guys have real food. I'd buy like peanut butter and it would be peanuts. You know, uh, here I'm like peanut butter and it's got 50 things in it. Half of them I can't pronounce. And it's like, it's not even real oil anymore. You put something else in it. There's all these industrialized seed oils being used. And I think that somewhat of our acceptance of hunting is a backlash of the, of what we've done to our food supply that Americans are like, that we see the value in the wild game in a way that other countries don't because you guys haven't bastardized your food supply the way that we have. I mean, in some ways we've actually legitimized hunting by how we raise and how we produce food where when I'm in New Zealand, it's like, man, you guys have some great farming practices. You have some, some great, you know, the, the way you guys, how, how you manage uh, pesticides and things like that and how you, how you produce food. It's, it's pretty darn clean and pretty decent, pretty, pretty on the ball. It makes hunting seem sort of, something from the past, you know, that's not viable anymore. Whereas here it's like, we got to hunt just to survive our own food supply. You know, it's just to, I mean, it sounds silly, but it's true. I think there's a lot of uh, Americans who now see the value in nature's product in a way that they wouldn't have before. And so there's a whole food movement here. And that's why I say, I feel like if New Zealand were able to sort of embrace and promote the food movement, that this wild game provides that it in the end that is how hunting is looked at as a viable activity in today's day and you know that's just one way in and i think it's a critical component now those of us who spend years and years and months out in the wild i think there's so much more value brought to human life through the act of hunting than just the protein. Mm. But trying to communicate that and explain that to someone who doesn't spend 12 days in New Zealand Southern Alps alone, it's really tough to help them understand it, you know, help them get all at all those other reasons. And I can't even put a finger on all of those things. I think it's just in your DNA. It's just part of being human that unlocks when you do it. Mm. But if you, if you don't, so the one thing that everyone seems to get though is the food, the the protein part of it, you know? So I think that we should embrace that more. We should promote it more. We should make it more of our central message. Yeah, man. And I've, I've put up on my Instagram story, my, my weekend sojourn. And if you looked at that, you're like, so you climbed 200 meters of elevation twice. You bush bashed, you got soaked. It was sleeting. Um, you nearly fell down. A cliff. Well, I didn't nearly fall down a cliff, but you had a sketchy, <laughs> sketchy ride walking down the spur and and all that. Why why do you do this again? Um, <laughs> you, you know, and actually that that's the most fun. And it's the same like our, our one of our hunts. We walked eighteen k's in a day and, and then spent twenty four hours in a tent and then walked back out again. And <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, why do you do that again? 
it was awesome. But um, and then you, then you brought up about about the beers, and I'm a big fan of of the rivets, and I'm sure that been mm. on your podcast and but then the this you know the uphill battle that we're facing is, is the censorship of, of images and, and it can be beautifully trimmed and cut and presented um backstakes and, and they're still getting censored <laughs> what what are you getting much of that happening to your page you know this yeah this- i've asked i've asked people to subscribe to our newsletter yeah. you know go to, go to com and subscribe to the newsletter because when I produce a new video of a hunt like the bear series and and now we're getting ready to do the four part tar series, New Zealand series. It's like people who are subscribed to my YouTube, subscribe to my Facebook, my, my Instagram, my social media platforms. They're most likely not going to see what I post because they're being censored and restricted, Uh, especially for instance, like, well, on every platform. So it doesn't matter if you have a hundred thousand people following you on YouTube. Um, just because they're subscribed doesn't mean they'll see anything that you put out. And the one thing that's a direct line is still email. Yeah. I can send an email to everyone and say, Hey, new shows up, check it out. You can't do that through Instagram anymore. You can't do that through Facebook. They look at it. Oh, it's hunting. Now let's, let's not promote it through any, let's only let like 3% of his most hardcore audience see it, you know, and just, it's just, yeah, I've noticed it's, it's not just hunting though. Um, you know, in the United States, we're dealing right now with extreme censorship, um, issues just with Google, YouTube, Facebook, all of that. And, um, especially conservative voices being censored, you know, if, if, and it's, it's not like they target an individual and say, um, you know, we, we, we're going to shut down your page. They target your ideas. And so, you know, there are people who, for, let's take, for example, that um, I'll try to choose something benign. Let's say it's smoking pot, right? You know, and you have people who feel like it should be okay to smoke pot. And you have some people who think that it shouldn't be okay to smoke pot. And and they're afraid of, you know, the dangers of it, let's say. And so, um, if you, if you, if you put something more conservative up, like, I just don't think pot's a good idea. Then there are people that look at that and go, okay, well, I don't like that idea. So we're going to restrict that message. They didn't restrict you personally. They just restricted your idea. Mm. And, and, Unfortunately, too many of the ideas are being restricted and, and that's bad for the world. It's bad for the way that we have, you know, we're able to learn and grow as a, as a, as a society is through open and free discourse and through freedom of speech. So, so allowing people to voice their opinion over here and this group to voice their opinion over here. When you talk about abortion, there's two sides to that. There's, there's people that are pro-life and people that are are pro-choice and we should have a free and open discussion about it. Um, And the, the sad thing is, is we have some very, I guess, progressive uh, voices in there that are, that are heads of organizations like Google that are like, Anything, anytime you talk about um, abortion as pro, pro-life, well, that, that, that message gets restricted where the pro-choice message gets 
unfettered access to the public. And so now you're not having a free and open discourse because one side might sway another side if they actually get together and talk about it. And so the, the, the public's arena should just be laid open. Let me talk about bears and how we eat them and how we hunt them and, and how we manage them. They're, they're an all-time rise. They're no longer on the endangered species list. They're thriving. And they're having a negative impact on ungulate populations that we've restored that are now starting to crash. We have, we, uh, we've had issues with different populations of moose that are struggling. Let us increase the, the bear and predator uh, you know, uh, harvest rate in those regions until the moose can come back. And we should be able to do these things and make these choices. But if your message is suppressed and censored right off the bat, it's hard to let, have anyone hear any other message that's in mainstream except the one that that they want you to hear, which is that bear hunting is evil and bad and we should, we shouldn't do it. And humans have moved way past hunting. Mm. It's like, I don't know how you can do that when you meet every day, how you can come to that conclusion. But yeah, I think the censorship thing is a major problem. And thankfully I think in our country, there's a lot of voices coming out. There's a lot of hearings um, being had on, on, on uh, the censorship by Twitter and Google and all of these things. Joe Rogan had Twitter on there and really took them to task on their censorship. Um, you know, there was a bunch of stuff just, just recently with Google and Facebook and they're coming out and trying to manage that. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm naturally an optimistic person. I'm a realist and a pragmatist, but I also kind of believe in the goodness of humanity. Otherwise we'd already all nuked each other. So I think overall we do pretty good because it could be a hell of a lot worse right now. Uh, and so I think in the long term, as long as people are willing to, to put their voice out there and, and fight that your, your message will be, heard and and things will move in the right direction over time i th i think that it's just a matter of time before they break up google it's a monopoly um before you know we we broke up uh the phone companies back in the day and lots of monopolies we we've we've taken down um and i just think it's you know airline industry same thing i think we're just at that point where you know google is king by far and it it's too much you know, and they're able to control uh, what people see and hear, and and uh, that's a problem. Yeah, and when you speak about Google, they're not just Google; they're they're an investment company. And when you when you learn that Google has an interest in um, this sort of health message that came out earlier in the year, the Eat Lancet, which has been debunked by many many people. Um, and then you also find out that they're involved with artificial meat, you know, <laughs> things like Microsoft are involved with artificial meat and you start to go, is this why when you, you know, the, the reach of things like keto, the reach of things like hunting, the reach, reach of things like sustainable agriculture just get disappeared into the, into the nowhere. Um, yeah. Even though, even though the search for them is super high, you know, is that, I, is that the influence? <laughs> I, I do. I think that it's, it's had, it's, it's taken its toll. And then yet you still have things like meat eater hitting Netflix, right? Yeah. And, and you still have, you know, Joe Rogan, you know, crossing all those boundaries, you know, through his 
I don't know how many, 5 million downloads a day or something. I mean, that's just a lot of people that are being influenced by alternative sources. Um, you have um, stuff like, you know, I don't know how many hunters in the United States, uh, but each of those people bring home meat and give it to their non-hunting friends. You still have this this message finding a way through. And I know for me, when I look at news, most of the news I look at, I go, ah, fake news. Kind of like President <laughs> Trump does. Like, I'm kind of like, ah, don't, don't believe that one. I'll believe it when I get more details. Jussie Smollett being a noose around his neck. Like, I'm like, ah, yeah, in Chicago, this is MAGA country. Like, things like that just kind of, I don't always believe it. And so I've, I proactively go and look for, news from sources I trust. And, uh, I think that, um, despite all their censorship, um, there's still a lot that gets out and finds a way to the mainstream and the mainstream, like you said, is asking for it. They actually are, you know, going, I want to learn more about bear hunting, you know, and they actually look around for it. Lost my lights. <laughs> Hang on. Sorry about that. No, you're right, man. So, yeah, I, I'm, I, again, I, I think I'm, I'm still optimistic. I think um, countries like Canada, I talked to a lot of Canadians, they're really, really frustrated right now. Um, and, but I think that they're just a few years behind the U.S. I think that pendulum will swing. Yeah, maybe. There's, there's a bit of that going on in New Zealand frustration, that's for sure. Depending on what community you come from, there's a lot of hope with some people, but then, the things that they're hopeful for haven't happened. So it's, it's tough. <laughs> we, we have problems in our own community too. You know, I, when I came home from New Zealand, I got um, a message from, from some folks that were from New Zealand, primarily one gentleman who, who just said, Hey, it's, it's really, uh, I'm really disappointed in, um, you know, your, your hunt, you know, like, why did you, it's just disgusting that you shot such small tar. Why didn't you shoot older tar? And, and I, and I looked at that and I'm like, you know, you know, my hunt is my hunt. You know, the reasons I'm there may not be the same as your reasons. And the idea that I should only shoot a tar that's, I don't know, 12, 14 inches and that's the only acceptable course of action. Or I, I feel like I, I, first of all, my reasons for going there are to experience the country, the culture, to see the animal, to eat the animal. That's a huge part of it for me. Like I want to actually harvest it and eat it and see what it's like. And in the country where we took the animal, that has more to do with it for me than the actual size of the animal. Like, if I go up into some rugged mountain range and I bring home, you know, a small elk, that means way more to me than the one that was behind the farm, you know, down the road here. That's five times as big. Like trophy country has way more value to me than the trophy animal. And the goal is to achieve both the oldest age class animal I can find in the most rugged country I can hunt. Like that's the challenge I want but I'm learning. This is my first tar hunt, you know, out on my own. And I thought it's a shame that another one hunter, instead of saying, you know, well done, that's great what you did. 
I love how you're, you're, you're promoting hunting in a positive light. I, I love how, how, how you've, you've, you've gone about this experience. Instead, it's, man, you're pathetic. You, you shot like baby tar. What's wrong with you? And I don't, that, that sort of mentality, just that, that right there is exactly why people, non-hunters, have struggle with us at times. We don't do ourselves any favors. No, it, it, it's, um, yeah, back to Theodore Roosevelt. So it's the man in the arena yeah. that, that, that makes a difference. Mate, um, how did getting the, the trophy out of the country, were you able to get the meat out of the country? Was there yeah. any challenges there? Like, no, so, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the meat thing was easy. The whole thing was easy, really. Um, so we 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 brought all the meat back from all all the tar in the chamois, um, and we brought all the skulls back and the hides. And um, what we did was uh, we stayed in a hotel, and we got one with the kitchenette, and then we basically um, were able to boil the skulls in the hotel, just like cook a a roast or whatever, you know, so except it was a skull and uh, we boiled it and then scraped it clean and bleached it. And it took a day, you know, of us hanging out at the hotel and we butchered all the meat, deboned it, all that and bagged it in, in gallon Ziplocs, got it all taken care of. And then we double bagged it in some, well, basically saran wrap or, or, or a plastic wrap. And we put the hides, we wrapped those up in, in plastic wrap, duct taped them, super tight and then uh we took everything to the local uh tavern mm -hmm. and uh and they were really really cool in in the city we were in and they let us just throw them in their freezer and uh we just put them in uh, some yeti pangas because they're waterproof bags they're not insulated uh we could use an insulated bag but um uh, that's not an, they're not big enough. You know, Yeti's insulated bags aren't, aren't big enough. You can bring, I think 40 or 50 pounds of meat back in a, in a, in a, in an insulated, but when it's frozen solid, it'll last a couple days. And so what we did was we threw it inside the panga, the hide and the meat and, uh, and then threw it in the panga, threw it in the freezer a couple days before we left. So when we got it out, it was rock hard. And the skulls I just put in my checked baggage um, and um, there's no problem with any of that because once you pull the brain matter out and it's been cooked and all that and bleached, um, there's no importation issues because there's no, there's no live bacteria or diseases that could be spread or anything like that. So the biggest issue is um, if you're coming it was the exportation. Like the U S was pretty easy about importation of the animals, the meat, the hide, the, the, the skulls. There's no real rules against importing it. Um, there are a few issues as far as, uh, um, the skull and the brain matter outside of that, you're pretty much green lighted to come into the U S now leaving with an animal, the biggest issue that we had heard about that we could face is uh, New Zealand stopping us from leaving with the animal because some airline people don't know the rules. So the DOC has a nifty little um, letter that you can print out 
written by the president of the DOC. I don't know what his title is. President, boss, man, yeah. uh, leader. Uh, and, he, and it's, um, it's basically uh, an, sort of a signed affidavit kind of thing that shows that, 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 that explains that tar are not are non-CITES species, tar and chamois that they're invasive and that they're a non-CITES species. So they don't need a CITES permit in order to be exported. Hmm. So you just present that to the airline. um, If they ask, if they, if they're like, wait a minute. And then they read it and they're like, Oh, okay. And they let us just check the bag as luggage. And um, it's gotta be under 70 pounds. Um, anything over 50 is going to cost you a little extra because it's overweight. So you got to pay an oversized bag. So my tar meat and the hide all in the Yeti Panga, I checked, I checked one that was 70 pounds and another one that was like 50 pounds and it was 200 bucks uh, for each bag basically. So it's just two, two extra bags. So when I flew over there, I flew over there with two empty Yeti pangas and uh, bags inside my main bag. So when I flew back, I just chucked all the frozen stuff in there and uh, checked it as luggage. No problem. I landed in the U S they were like, they wanted to look at the meat. They looked at it and they're like, yeah, cool. And then they wanted to pass the skull around to all their buddies in the <laughs> in customs and check this out. It's cool. Uh, and, uh, but everyone was cool with it. And, so technically any airline could give you trouble um, because they don't know their own rules. So if you go out of your way to, you know, to help them know their own rules and you're polite, I don't think that it's much trouble importing. So Ryan imported his separately on a different airline, different trip. You know, he left the day after I did Lampers um, and he was my hunting partner on this trip. No problem. So um you know, I know Remy's brought some stuff back and others from have brought things back. And uh, it's a whole different ball game if you're trying to bring stag antlers back. That, that's just not going to fit in a bag. So, yeah. <laughs> But chamois and tar, not a problem. Yeah, see, see plenty of the, um, the taxidermists rig up big crates to send, send things back. And I think that's where most, most guys end up doing a mount if, if they're having to go to that trouble anyway, they end up doing, doing a mount and, and get it back. Yeah. Like what I found, uh, cause last year when I went, I paid a taxidermist um, to do it. I dropped it off and I ended up paying a total of $1,800 to have my, um, to have a single tar shipped back the hide and the skull uh, just salted mm. and the skull bleached and uh, and it came over. So it was a fallow deer that my buddy Keith shot and a tar. So a tar and a fallow ended up costing near, near two grand to have it shipped here versus I brought back basically three tar for 400 bucks. Mm. And I have it with me. I didn't have to wait like a year to get it. I didn't have to call a broker either. Like you have to have a broker, international broker, deal with two taxidermists. And then you got to pay the brokerage fee. Like the whole thing was a joke. So 
bringing it in on as luggage was the way to go in my opinion yeah i guess yeah one more thing for us to be aware of is that it, it with the international world that we live in now these these things are easy to do and yeah if, if you if you prepare you can do it well the whole trip was it was like our airfare was $1,800 round trip. Um, and then I think we paid around another shipping trophies and everything and, and meat and, and, uh, luggage. I think it was like another 600 in luggage. And then, uh, our rental car split two ways was about 500 bucks. And, uh, and then the, the helicopter was about six a piece. So, I mean, that whole trip can be done for under $3,000 from the United States, the whole thing. There's, there's more than enough. Like you could technically, if you're really, really, really careful and you did things like you could do that whole trip for 2,500, especially with some of the airline fees being half if you get the right time and you work that all in and stuff. So, um, man, I can't believe that I can do an epic, you know, tar goat hunt, you know, in the, in the Southern Alps for, for three grand and experience a whole nother country and part of the world. And I can't even go do a drop camp in, you know, my backyard for less than that for elk or mule deer. So mm. I think a lot of guys are just afraid to, to travel international. The whole idea of getting a passport, getting on an airplane, going to a foreign country, driving on the wrong side of the other side of the road. Uh, <laughs> I think all that stuff just intimidates people, you know? Um, and it shouldn't because once you've done it a couple of times and traveled the world a bit, it's, man that's a, it's a cool place to experience so i think there's a lot of new zealand outfitters and guys that'll probably hate my guts by the time you know they've heard more about people have heard about this but honestly i feel like i feel like you know it's there's people who who i feel like that are in my boat who are never going to pay ever ever going to pay for uh a guided outfitter service and, 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 and that, that group, that's who I'm speaking to, you know, and anybody who wants that other type of experience, they're not going to do what I just did. They're not interested. I don't think that they're the same demographics. I think there's room for us all to play together and get along just fine. Yeah. And what was Zion's take on you guys talking, talking with him? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like I really dig Zion and, uh, he was like, he's like, look, I can either snub you, you know, and not help you out and not, you know, and you're going to do it anyway. Because you got guys like Remy Warren who have paved the way and told you, you know, I can sit here and not be helpful, you know, or I can be helpful to something that's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. And he goes, frankly, I'd rather be friends than enemies. Why not? Cause we both value hunting and he, and Zion's like, look, what I like the most is that you're a voice for hunting and a, a positive voice for hunting that will just bring more value to 
our country and our and the wildlife that's here that we should have a spotlight shined on it let's do that together and yes it might impact some of my clientele but he's like i i pretty much he's like i agree that most likely the people who are paying me to come on a hunt aren't aren't the guys like you that want to do it do it yourself experience and he's like who knows down the road maybe i'm helping guys you know there's a small fee for me to help guys do you know a do it yourself kind of thing um but so i think that i think it's natural for some guys and outfitters to feel threatened by a do it yourself kind of guy and do it yourself kind of message but at the same time like i said i think there's room for both groups and we should we should be on the same team we should get along and you follow, follow the likes of Kajarna or in um my, my mates in Hawaii and, and, and Zion and, and, and stuff, you know, they, they seem to be doing a good job, plenty, plenty booked up, plenty of hunts done. And, and so, yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, we, I think they're doing, doing all right. Um, so yeah, mate, uh, I need to get off to work. Uh, where, where, do, where do people find Gritty? Instagram, Facebook, yeah. YouTube, and the email, right? Yep. And Instagram, it's just Brian underscore call. Yeah. And uh, you can go to briancall.com and you'll have links to to gritty videos and, and all the gritty uh, uh, podcasts and stuff. I, I think I've got like 400 and I don't know, I don't know, 50, 80 episodes or something. It's been a while. Um, there's a lot to go through and, uh, you know, I don't even... I wish we had a search function on there. It's been some meaning to do. Like if you want to learn about New Zealand, like you can just type it in, but I don't have that. So unfortunately right now you just got to do it like the Rogan style and scroll through until you find titles you like. <laughs> um, but uh, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here and to talk about this, this kind of stuff. I mean, I appreciate it very much. Likewise, mate, it's been been awesome. What would you like to leave us with a thought, uh, a way you live your life, or, or even a question for people to contact you about? Um, man, that's a O'Connor. That's kind of a deep thought. All of a sudden, like, <laughs> um, you know, I would say uh, um, something I heard recently that I really liked. Um, you know, when it comes to something's been on my mind when it comes to, um, let's say our country here in the United States, my country with the United States, there's, there's been a lot of, and, and this is the same for hunting. Um, I think it applies to a lot of things, but Winston Churchill said something to the effect of, uh, you know, capitalism, Western culture is, is, or, or capitalism is like the worst form of government imaginable except for all the other forms of government we have to choose from. And I think uh, there's a lot of truth in that because we can sit here and complain a lot about, you know, capitalism and, and Western thought and society and complain a lot about, about, you know, all the problems that even with hunting that's out there, there's just, I mean, we can poke holes in all of it. We can, we can, we can complain about some of you know, all this stuff, but I, I go, I think often that quote, it's like, well, you know, it is the worst form of government, except all the other types of government there are. I think it is a, is a wise way of looking at 
things because we tend to re- revise so, sort of, we kind of look ungrateful at the things we have in the way they are right now when really we should be like, you know, yeah, it's bad. It's got its issues, but dang, it's great. You know, it's, we've got all these great things going for us too. And at the end of the day, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, uh, we have a lot to be grateful for, uh, both in hunting and in life and in the, in the world. And I think we should, we should really acknowledge that and be grateful for it. So that's it. That's all I got for you. Awesome, man. No, that's, that's a, it's a good thought. And, and it, there's a lot that sort of stems from that in terms of personal responsibility. So yeah, wicked, man. I'll leave our podcast there. Thank you so much again. This has been epic. And, um, Hopefully next time we're in New Zealand, we can, we can catch up, baby. Absolutely. All righty. What did I tell you? It was a fantastic podcast and a, and a great way to finish there with what Brian was saying around, you know, I don't even know who, who it is. It sort of says that this is the greatest time to be alive. And despite its challenges and, you know, we're, we're all guilty of getting bogged down in, 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 the, in the details. And, and, you know, that's not to say that, the stresses of modern life aren't meaningful. I've got my fair share of, of stresses in, in modern life, but at the same time, the alternative is, is you know, it it's, can be romanticised, but in reality, uh, it can be tough. And yeah, the the worst form—I <laughs> love that quote—the the worst form of capitalism is the worst form of government, except for all the others. It might be it might be democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Um, yeah, it's pretty classic. And I loved what Brian said there about, you know, not throwing away your health, not being lazy with your health. Um, that's one of the big things that trying to push here on the stag roar is that health is a gift. And in the upcoming podcast with, with Cliff Harvey, it's something that we talk about that it's a tool that allows you to do the things you want in life. It's not something to be achieved. It's not a goal. It's it's not something to strive for is health because what is health? Dr. Libby has a good saying that it's either healthy or it's not. It's either food or it's not. It either serves you or it doesn't. Um, yeah, some, some good thoughts there and some great considerations from Brian and, and especially on what he ended with there, if you have something constructive or, or even a criticism, I'm happy to... Hear, hear you out on your thoughts around international people being able to come to New Zealand and hunt freely because right now that's the reality. We've all got to deal with it, either do something about it or accept that currently under the rules that's what it takes. And that may mean that as hunters we buy a licence. Like I said, that's we're no stranger to buying licences. We, if, if we want to go into a ballot, we, we pay to buy a ballot option. Uh, if we go into the Wapiti ballot, we, we're happy to pay the money there. So I know Southland deer ballot, there's, there's money to be put down with that. The tar ballot, you put money down, you know, so it's just a, around moving our, our mindset forward and, and discussing what it is that we want as hunters in New Zealand. Do we, you know, and, and Cam said this excellently in, in the NZ Hunter article, do we want to be pushed to the corner and, and not considered in any key decisions because Forest and Bird and, and Fish and Game have a whole bunch of money available to litigate and, and to lobby, because this is the reality, to litigate and to lobby the government uh, 
in in terms of of their best interest, or do hunters want to have a seat at the table? Like I said, the Game Animal Council is about to employ a general manager, um, and so if you've got the skills out there to be a general manager and and take the hunting community forward, I, I, it'd be awesome one to hear from you because I, I want to talk to the person that wants to do their job, and to you know that we need to support that person to be able to do the job. Yeah, so. A lot to consider from this chat, and that's why I loved having Brian on because it's always good to get an outside view of what we are doing in New Zealand because you can become ignorant to your own practices and it's always good to question your own practices and is this right? Do we take things for granted? And, and we probably have as hunters in New Zealand. And you know that's me saying as a relative newbie to hunting, but definitely I've been an observer of hunting for a very long time and, and I love what we have in this country and there's plenty of people that love what we have in this country. I met someone up at one of the huts the last time I was there and from South Africa and he loves what we have in this country and that's why he's now a member of NZDA and yeah, that's why I came back to this country and, and joined NZDA. Because yeah, even as a resident in Australia, I just could not work out how to go hunting in Australia and, and they love coming over to New Zealand. We've had a couple of Aussie hunters on the podcast who, who love coming to New Zealand, just one, because of the accessibility, two, because the trophies that we've got, and three, the biggest thing, it's just the country, the countryside that you get to hunt and the countryside that you get to explore and enjoy and challenge yourself against and hopefully don't damage yourself in. Um, it's just incredible. And, yeah, that's that's where we stand right now. And, and either we do nothing and have it somewhat taken from us or we start to stand up and do something as a collective, and, and joining NZDA is a great way to start. Of course, I bring you the podcast with the help of Y-Keto. That's for exogenous ketone supplements. You'll hear a little bit about that on the next podcast with Cliff. Cliff's a massive fan of exogenous ketones as well. The Prove It supplement can get you into ketosis in under half an hour. That's Prove It Nat. It's a pretty special product. It's just a ready-to-drink Oh, sorry, a mix sachet, just mix it in with water, uh, drink it up, and boom, you have that incredible feeling of being in ketosis uh, in under half an hour, and it's absolutely awesome. It's great for playing rugby, protecting your brain in case you do unfortunately get a knock. Also, recovering from a head knock. I've got a number of uh, clients who take exogenous ketones because they've had terrible head knocks, and it just allows them to focus and, and, and you know, stay switched on and have the energy and not have that chronic fatigue-like symptom. It's really awesome to make your body more efficient. As I said on the podcast, I was in ketosis last week on the hill. Did a little bit of intermittent fasting to try to do that. Made sure I was eating keto, high fat, low carbohydrate. Um, I always take salami and cheese on the hill. I think my girlfriend thinks that's why I go hunting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a great way to get into ketosis without all the fasting. It's a great way to maximize energy and it's a great way to keep the brain switched on. If you'd like to order that, just head to the Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O, and send me a message or my Instagram page at Stag Vision. You'll find all the podcasts there. If you're in Australia, US, Canada, East Asia, then you can just go to Waikito, that's W-A-I-K-E-T-0 dot prove it now, P-R-U-V-I-T-N-O-W dot com, and you can order straight from the website. You might want to have a look on the website if you're elsewhere uh, and let me know what you'd like to order thanks again as i said we've got some podcasts coming which is wicked i love having podcasts in the can so i know that i can bring it out to you thanks for listening please give me your feedback i'd love to hear from you and have a great week cheers